All right. Good morning. I hope you're doing well. If I haven't met you, my name is Matt. I uh, serve as one of the pastors here. Let me just say, following up on uh, Danny's dedication, uh, you know, we're obviously very excited about him being born and the whole dedication thing, but there's also another level where um, you, there, there's a value where, where God saves us, uh, not just to himself, but to a community, and God willing, uh, we hope that uh, the Lord will draw Danny to himself in Christ, but I just want to say how thankful we are for you uh, as a community. Like, I, I feel like not everybody can say that they are, are proud that their, their son was born into a specific group of believers, but, but we are. And, and I just want to uh, express our appreciation for you all, not just even when Holly was pregnant and going through all of that process, but even just recently uh, with Danny being born and all of the support and all of the meals and all of the prayers and, and all of that, we are, we're very, very thankful for, for all of you. But let's jump right into the text this morning. Um, if you haven't, we now have Pew Bibles, so I can say you should open your Bibles uh, to uh, Exodus chapter 24, as you heard Elise just uh, read so well. I think it's page 115, uh, if I'm looking at it right. And there's kind of some interesting stuff in today's text, so I would really, really encourage you to actually get your eyes on it. So as we're pointing out certain things, uh, you can actually track along with us. But while you do that, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, as we look upon your word this morning, we're grateful that we get to delight in a covenant relationship with you. As we read now about Israel entering into covenant with you, please help us, Lord, please help us to see what you want us to. Please lead us to where you desire us to be. Lord, we ask that you would stir our hearts for you and and, and you alone this morning as we gaze upon the wonder of your gospel. Lord, give us ears to hear your word very clearly. Lord, so that we might respond in obedience and be led to worship you. We pray all of this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. All right, well, one of the uh, overwhelming things that Holly and I have had to track through over uh, the past few years, apart from uh, Danny being born, was purchasing uh, our first house in in North Minneapolis. And, And I remember this moment of walking into the realty office and they have all the nice glass windows and, it, and it's all fancy and, and it felt something like this where you have all, all of this paperwork just it feels like stacks and, and stacks and you feel like you're signing your life away and one of the pieces of advice uh, that people often give you when you're going into something important like that is, is make sure that you read the fine print Right? You want to know all of the details. You want to understand all of the expectations that are being laid out before you. You want to have all your ducks in a row because once you've signed all of that paperwork, it has a real impact on your life. You're coming into an agreement with an entity that has more financial weight and power than yourself. You're, you're in one sense, going into something that there is no turning back from. And as we consider Israel this morning and where they're at in their specific journey, we find that they are now about to come into a relationship with an entity, with a being that is far greater than them. And there is no turning back for them once they have signed on the dotted line here. 
We've seen that Israel has been freed by God out of Egypt and into the wilderness. They're, at this point, since they were slaves in Egypt, the only feasible place for them to go now that they have left is forward to the promised land that God had promised to their forefathers. And this has been a time in the wilderness of, of trial and of testing, both internal and external, right? They have e- enemies around them in the wilderness, and internally, they're wrestling with their own hearts about whether they actually want to be obedient to God. And yet all of that testing is not without purpose, right? It had, there's something that God is doing in them. He is preparing them for a specific moment. And it's the moment that we covered last time when we, they got to uh, Mount Sinai, last time I was preaching. Chapter 19, they arrived at Mount Sinai. And this is where they're gonna spend uh, the next year of their life and the rest of the book of Exodus. And if you wanna think about it this way, this might be helpful. Where all of the plagues and, and God liberating his people from Egypt was that they so, so that they could be in a relationship with him. When they get to Sinai, this is the place where that will actually come to fruition. In other words, God was not just saving them out of Egypt for something neutral, for, for nothingness. He was saving them for something very specific. And that was a relationship with him. And in chapter 19, we see that they actually uh, accepted, hey, we want to be in this with you, God. God told them that if they actually accept this relationship invitation and if they obey him, then they will have a special dignity before him and they will be sent on a specific mission. He said that they will be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests and a, a treasured possession. And Israel said, yes, we want to do this, God. And yet, on the other hand, they didn't know how to be in relationship with a being like this. And so God, in his incredible grace, he gave them a set of instructions for what it meant to follow him. We know those instructions as the law. And as we look at the law, we covered the Ten Commandments and and some of the logistical laws that followed out how Israel was to demonstrate the heart of the commandments in their cultural specific context. And yet now as we enter into chapter 24, we find that Israel has become now keenly aware of God's expectations. There is nothing hid from them about what it means for them to follow him. He has invited them. He's made his expectations clear. In some terms, you might say he has gone over the fine print of the agreement that he is inviting them into. And now today's text addresses whether they are actually willing to sign on that dotted line. Are they actually going to enter into this agreement with Yahweh and what is going to be the immediate result of that? So let's consider what happens here. The first thing that we see is that they come into a covenant that is established by blood. So we're gonna skip verses one and two. We'll come back to that just shortly. But before anything else can happen in the story here, they have to go through an official covenant ritual ceremony. And that's verses three through eight. Look at those with me. We're gonna read those again. It says, when Moses went and told the people all of the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. So Moses wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bulls and the other half he splashed against the altar 
Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people, and they responded, we'll do everything the Lord has said we will obey. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on them, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. So the first thing that we see happen is Moses reads them the law. We've been covering the law for the past few weeks, but now he reads it to them in completion, and they say, yes, we want to be a part of this. We want to come into this agreement. We want to pursue this relationship with Yahweh. So Moses says, okay. He says, fine, we're going to now go through the ceremony. So he formally writes down that law so that they can review it year after year after year, and he sets up this ritual, and this is what happens. He takes 12 stone pillars, sets them up. These represent Israel, the 12 tribes, so in effect, all of Israel. Over here at the base of the mountain, he sets up an altar, and this altar is meant to represent God himself in this partnership. Then Moses sends out some young men to kill some bulls, and they take the blood from those bulls. They make a sacrifice, and then the blood is sprinkled on the altar. And since the altar represents God, what's happening is they are signaling that God is the first partner in this covenant. The only logical thing left to do is they would take the blood and they would put it on Israel for them to be the other covenant partner. And yet there's a pause in the text, and I want us to notice this. It happens in verse 7. There's a hesitation. So where he first told Israel all the laws, now Moses, after writing it down, he reads it to them one more time. And I believe this is signaling for us that this is that this is it moment in the history of these people. If they are going to back out now from this covenant, this is the time that they would do it. There is no turning back after this. They are about to bind themselves to the maker of the universe. And what do they say? They say, we're in. They say, just like they said in chapter 19, just like they say in verse three, everything the Lord has said, we will do. So Moses takes the blood, he throws it on them, and now they are in. There's the blood on the altar, the blood on them. They are now partners in the covenant. Now you might read this and you might think as, as most people do when they look at this like that's super weird. Like what is going on? Like there's probably only a handful of people, John and I being two of them in this room that this turns our gears thinking about this text. But for most of us it's like altars, pillars, killing bulls, sprinkling blood, burning things. Like what, what is happening in the text? I was trying to imagine like what it would be like for us to describe to someone who is not a Jesus follower that this is a demonstration of God's desire to be in relationship with his people. Could you imagine that? Like, hey, how does God show his love for people? Oh, well, he wants to be in relationship. And the way that he does that is they kill some bulls and he sprinkles it on his people and on this altar and like that's how he does it. So like, do you wanna trust Jesus now? Like, like, could you imagine like how odd that would be? And yet, I, I want to encourage you all this morning that like, there is an enormous amount of significance and beauty to what is going on when we take the time to thoughtfully dig into this. What we see in this ceremony is that God has a very high value for the integrity of his people and he is abundant in mercy. And a lot of it centers upon what is happening with these sacrificed bulls. 
Because we look at them, and many of us might see these bulls being slaughtered as, as barbaric, but when they're looking at it, what we need to recognize is those bulls are a symbol for the penalty of breaking the covenant. There is a very high bar that is being set for both God and Israel. What's effectively being said is, okay, if I go back on this covenant, if I break this covenant, may what was done to those bulls be done to me. And consider with me the fact that not only Israel goes in on this, but God does as well. So God is signaling to Israel, if I go back on my faithfulness to you, may you do to me what was done to those bulls, Israel. Keep that in mind. We also see that there's a level of, of mercy that's happening, that these bulls are even provided for Israel in the first place. Because in one sense, they are a substitute for Israel's own life. Because we've seen that Israel, just like the other nations around them, is severely corrupt. They are severely compromised. It's not like the other nations are the good guys and are the bad guys, and Israel is the good guys. Israel, what we come to find, is also one of the villains here in the story, like the rest of us. They are just as deserving of God's justice and the penalty of death. And yet God, as they enter into this covenant, makes provision in that as that bull dies, it is dying in the place of the justice that Israel deserves. And so as that blood is being sprinkled on the altar, it is symboling that Israel is going before God with a sacrifice before them so that they can enter into this covenant with a brand new, fresh start. And so when we're looking at this, what might seem odd to us, and I acknowledge this seems very culturally foreign to us, but what seems odd to us is actually a symbol of God entering into this beautiful agreement with his people. And I think that that leads us here to what is the implication of this covenant that is established by blood? And it's this, that there is an invitation to fellowship with God. The covenant leads to fellowship. Now we can look at verses one and two. Go back there with me for a second. Then the Lord says to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders. You're to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord and the others may not come near and the people may not come with him. Then they go through the covenant ceremony and then this picks up again in verse nine. Look at verse nine with me. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel and they see under his feet a pavement-looking thing, but God didn't raise his hands to them. Instead, they sat up there, and they ate, and they drank. So there's this delegation now as a result of the covenant that is being brought up to the mountain. It's made up of Moses, the unique leader of Israel. It's made up of Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. They're going to be the priests later on for the nation of Israel. And then 70 other elders. So there's this priestly, civil, unique group that is going up on the mountain. And in one way, they are representing all of Israel being invited into fellowship with God. So all of Israel goes into the covenant. And then there's this group that's delegated. And they are symbolizing that all of Israel is now invited into relationship with God. But what I want to point out it is not as much who but what is happening here. And it's that they are not just being invited into some legal agreement. They're not just being invited into some sort of dry, cold, you do this, I'll do this kind of thing, but an intimate relationship with God himself. It says that they go up on the mountain and they see God. Can you imagine a moment like that? 
It, now we know due to Exodus 33 that they probably didn't see him completely. It says no one can totally see God and live, but they got some sort of glimpse of him in this profound moment. So consider with me, if you were in their shoes, if you were up there and you were seeing God, what would you do? Have you ever thought about that? If you were standing before God and he was looking at you and he wasn't saying anything, what, what would you do? Would you bow down? Would you be silent? Would you sing him a worship song like we have? Maybe a hymn like we, we sing on, on some worship gatherings? Or maybe the, the ones who are a little more bold of us might, might ask him a question that, that they've never been able to answer before. Like, like, what would you do? How would you respond? What would you say? Because they, they know what's going on. These elders, they go up and they eat. They eat of all the things. Like God invites them up to fellowship and share a meal with him. And that, I think, is something that does culturally resonate with us. We look at the ritual covenant ceremony and we're like, that's a little odd. But I think we all get the idea that when we like somebody, when we enjoy being with them, we're friends with them, what do we do? Sometimes we sit down and we share a meal with them. There's an intimacy, there's a level of fellowship that is associated with that. And in the same way in their context, once you made a covenant with somebody, you would sit down and you would have a meal with them. That was signaling that you were now partners and you were now friends. But this is something different than that. This is something more profound than that because they're not sitting down with a human being to share a meal. They are sitting in the presence of God and fellowshipping with him while they eat. When we think about how that would have been perceived by them and by their neighbors, that is shocking. That is countercultural for them. Where the gods that the other nations are worshiping, they're, they're fickle and they're unpredictable and they're, in, in many regards, just awful. They're dramatic and they treat others awfully. They, they treat the people awfully. They look at these people and they, they see them as their slaves. And yet Yahweh is saying that is not who we are going to be now that we're in this covenant. That is not how you and I are going to interact. We are now partners and friends. This is a profoundly different relationship than any other people group would have understood in the time of ancient Israel. This is the kind of relationship that God wants people to see and say, I wanna be a part of that. Like that God cares about his people intimately. That God wants to dwell with his people. That God wants to be in a real relationship where he's not dependent on them. In fact, he provides everything that they could ever possibly need because he loves them. This is something different. And it leads me to ask this then, what's the point? What, what is the point when we look at a text like this? It's easy when we go through the Old Testament specifically to look at what God is doing here with Israel and say that is good for Israel. That's awesome what God does for them. I understand what's going on in the text and yet I'm not quite sure what that relevance might be for me. You know, when we start in Genesis and we see creation and the flood and then we start at Exodus and we see uh, what goes on with the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, like that stuff's interesting. That stuff grabs our attention. But when we get into these covenant ceremonies, like this is the kind of place where like most of us abandon our annual Bible reading plan, right? This is where we jump ship because we're like, I don't, I don't see exactly what is going on. 
But I want us to understand that at the very least, at the very least, this is revealing the heart of God for his people to us. This is revealing the core of God's being and what, what is he about and how does he want to relate to his creation. So what do we see about God's heart? What is this showing us? It's showing us that God desires to be in a personal covenant relationship with all of his people. Every single one of them, he desires to be in a relationship with them. Now in principle, many of us know that especially those of us who are coming kind of off the, the coattails of, of Billy Graham and some of the revivalist movement and, and some of the Billy Graham crusades. And just in evangelicalism as a whole, we really do have a category for people having a, a personal relationship with God. And yet I don't think we have a category enough for really considering how absurd and ridiculous that actually sounds, like when we think about it. Like, consider the Bible story. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that we're dust creatures. And the eternal God has invited us into a relationship with him. The fact that he wants to do that is ridiculous. With how jacked up and broken we are, God says, I want to be with you at all costs. And we're just seeing a glimmer of that played out in the life of Israel here. And what's crazier than that is the fact that God knows all things. And I know that that's in principle, like, great, that, that's, that, that's a cool theological consideration. But think about this in practice here with Israel. God does not just know what they've done. God does not just know what's going on here. But he knows exactly what Israel's trajectory is going to be. He knows that they are going to breach the covenant that they are going to violate these commandments that they said that they are going to obey. He's, he knows that they are going to incur the penalty of death upon themselves, just like the bulls. Remember, they're the symbol of may this be done to me. That's the penalty that they're going to bring on themselves when they violate God's commandments. And yet God allows them to enter into this covenant anyway. And that should lead us to the question of why. Why would God, knowing that they are going to violate this covenant, invite them into relationship anyway? Is it because he's sadistic? Is it because he enjoys punishing people and pouring out his wrath on them and eternally damning them? Is, is that why he does this? Certainly not. Certainly not. When we look at the Bible story, we find that God allows them to do this knowing that they're going to violate it. Because he has every intention of not only being faithful on his part of the promise, but for being faithful on their behalf as well. As we consider the gospel this morning, we see the truth that God is faithful to the uttermost, that he intends to be faithful on the behalf of broken people, come to fruition in its fullest form in the person of Jesus. Because the story plays out just like God knew it would. That the same group who said, we will obey everything the Lord has said, we will do all of these things, within 10 chapters, they're already rebelling against God. Because at the end of the text here, as Elise read, God invites Moses up onto the mountain and he's gonna give them the covenant tablets, the documents, the, or the, well, they're made of stone at this point, but the, this, the stone tablets that they're gonna put into their Ark of the Covenant in the temple. And as Moses is up there getting those things from God, what what is Israel doing down at the bottom? They're making a golden calf. 
They are violating not just any command, but the first command that God had given them. They couldn't even make it past the first one. And they're already rebelling against God. And what we see is that they have mouths that are very willing to go into this covenant agreement. And their hearts, on the other hand, are enormously sick and want to define what is good and evil. They want to do things in their own way. And as much as we wish that that wasn't so for us, that same sickness that we see playing out in Israel is the same thing that we inherently suffer from. Because the scriptures are clear that we've all gone astray. We have all done things as we wanted to do it instead of doing things the way that God desires us to. In other words, not only has Israel violated the covenant, but so have we. Now, our brokenness and our sin may look different and may take on different expressions and forms, but the same things that grieve and anger God and hurt one another are to be found in us as well. And yet the good news that we reflect on and that we are led to worship God by this morning is that we see, just like we did, God's mercy and his value for integrity. We saw it played out in this ritual ceremony with Israel. We see this in its fullest fulfillment in God's son. Because as God takes on flesh in Christ, he becomes the covenant partner with the father that we could never be. What's amazing in the Bible story is that we are the ones who rebel against God, and yet God takes the penalty that we deserve. Have you processed how backwards that is? Let me say that again. We are the ones who break God's law, and God takes the penalty for it on our behalf. We are the ones who, instead of, instead of following God in, with hearts that are drawn to him and in love for him and in love for one another, we are the ones who push back on God. And instead of him allowing us to die in our rebellion and sin, God takes on that penalty for covenant breaking in Jesus as Jesus dies on a cross. And in the resurrection of Jesus, we find the assurance that as we place our faith in him, we not only experience symbolic forgiveness and purity like Israel had when that blood was put on them and on the altar, but we find true, lasting, perfect forgiveness in the Son of God, which leads us to love God out of appreciation for what he has done and be reconciled to one another. Every single week, we we take communion together. And it's this beautiful traditional expression that we have of remembering what Christ has done for us. But we oftentimes hear Jesus' words talking about the new covenant in his blood as just something unique and and, and disconnected, that maybe he's doing something new that we we don't quite get, but we, we trust in him. But as we consider what Moses says here, hear what Moses says. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. As in a few minutes when we hear Jesus' words to his earliest followers, when he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, I want us to hear this with fresh ears where Jesus is fulfilling everything that we're reading here yet in a fuller expression. Because it is not through the blood of bulls and goats that we are made fresh. There is nothing that we can do, no sacrifice that we could make that could earn us or that could restore us to fellowship with God. It is only through the blood of Jesus applied to our account that we are brought into a new covenant. A covenant where we are purified from the inside out where we're justified by Jesus' work, 
where the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us and makes us into a people who not only just try to obey this law. We're not like Israel who are trying time and time again and yet we're battling with this internal thing going on. The Holy Spirit comes into us and makes us slowly but surely into a people who desire to embody the heart of God in his law as we are restored to him and to one another. And because of Christ's work, we think about here the Israelites going up on this mountain, sharing in a fellowship meal with God. And then we think about Jesus sitting at the Last Supper, the the embodiment of God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, sharing a meal with his disciples. What the scriptures promise is this. When we trust in Christ, we're not only forgiven for sin, we not only await resurrection and the restoration of all things, but we also await what they call the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will sit once again with God face to face and share in fellowship with him and with one another in a renewed world because of the new covenant that Jesus has brought about by his own blood. What we celebrate and what should lead us this morning to worship together in song today is this fact right here, that Jesus is both the faithful covenant maker, he is the one who poured out his blood so that we could be brought into this new covenant with God, and he is also our faithful covenant partner who goes where we could not, who lives the life that we couldn't in our place so that we would never taste death. So we transition to communion now. Let's just take a moment to to reflect on that and what Jesus has done and, and have a time of silent confession together. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word indeed by the things that we have done and by the things that we have left undone. Lord, in so many ways we are quite similar to Israel, that we have enormously broken hearts, that where you tell us how you desire us to act and how you desire us to be in relationship with you and with one another, so many times we disobey. So many times we desire to go about things in the way that we want to do them instead of submitting ourselves to your design and to your loving plans for us. Lord, we don't want to be that way. Lord, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart, our mind and our strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, we have contributed to so much of the brokenness that we see around us and we have acknowledged that we have committed cosmic treason before you and lord we come to you this morning and we ask that in your mercy and for christ's sake our covenant partner that you would forgive what we have been that by your spirit lord that you would amend what we are and that you would lead us and direct what we should be Lord, we desire to do this so that your name would be known in the entire world, that you would be glorified, and so that your people might delight in your will, and so that we might walk in your ways, so that Christ himself, our King, would be exalted forevermore. We pray this all in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.